0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel v. Pro.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
1: Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 24th. Today, the challenges of dressing both fashionably and ethically. Plus, a little woman for every generation.
2: One of the interesting conversations that I had was with Dana Thomas who has written about fast fashion and the question of sustainability and is it possible to buy, you know, one perfect white shirt, a shirt that is just not going to do damage to the environment. And... You know, she felt that she had sort of come close to that, but the cost of that shirt is significant. And How much did that shirt cost? She had spent well over $500. On a single white shirt? On a single white shirt. But one of the other, to me, most fascinating things is that the cost of clothing has gone down compared to so many other things. So the amount that we consume is really extraordinary. And so people balk at the idea of spending $500 on a single shirt or $200 on a single shirt or even $100 on a single shirt. But the reality is that how many white shirts do you really need?
1: At the same time, if you only have one white shirt rather than five white shirts, you're probably... Washing that white shirt and running the laundry more regularly. <laughs> and I'm sure there are ethical implications to that too.
2: You're hand washing it in like pristine, I don't know, water or something. I don't know what you're doing. I am Robin Gavan and I cover the fashion industry. The question of sustainability is just this massive, unwieldy, Looming topic within the fashion industry. And sustainability in fashion encompasses everything. I mean, it it begins with certainly the chain of production, but it also includes the materials, it includes the labor practices, it has to do with what happens at the end of the life cycle for those clothes. And it has to do simply with consumption and how we really understand the purpose of fashion in our lives. Also the idea that
1: if fashion is something that makes us feel good— Another thing that makes us feel good is feeling like we're not actively tearing apart (laughs) the planet. And that being able to bring those two things together seems like an opportunity for people who are in the fashion industry.
2: It really is an opportunity. And in the past, oftentimes when people talked about so-called green fashion, it had this reputation for being something that was completely separate from the rest of the fashion industry. I feel like I think of hemp for some reason, when I think of green just like hemp correct. dresses. <laughs> they would be hemp dresses, you know, using vegetable dye, and they looked very sort of homespun and not particularly something that you would feel compelled to desire. And now the industry is really making an effort to just sort of change its business practices overall so that There isn't this separate category called green fashion. It's just fashion, and all fashion is trying to be better.
1: So what are some examples of how you've seen more consciousness about sustainability and about environmental awareness being represented in the fashion industry?
2: Well, I mean, I would start by saying that there is absolutely greenwashing, which is, you know, a a kind of exaggeration of just how sustainable or environmentally friendly something is and using a lot of mushy language to describe things that really are no better than what they replaced. Like what kind of language? Oh, uh, green mm-hmm. <laughs> is one of those things. I mean, there's there's no sort of legal definition for something that's, that's green or what is environmentally friendly really mean. Sustainably
1: Um, sourced. sustainable exactly. Or even recycled when I see that, you know, some clothing is made out of recycled whatever, whatever. And I'm like, I don't actually
2: know. What do you mean by recycled? Where did that come from? What does that mean? And part of the problem with some of the recycling programs is it sounds really wonderful to be able to bring back garments that you've worn and— have this understanding that they're being recycled into new fabric that then will be made into new garments. And there's this sort of wonderful um, circle of life kind of production. But the reality is that only a tiny percentage of those, you know, old trousers that you bring in are actually recycled into new fabric. But I do think that certainly at the higher end, some of the larger conglomerates are very focused On their production chain. And for them, it's a matter of dollars and cents. I mean, if climate change is impacting the growth of cotton or the production of, of leather or whatever the particular item might be, then that's really a problem for them. So they are, in fact, trying to reduce their carbon footprint. They're working to use more organic cottons, they're looking at less environmentally damaging production of leather and dyeing. And all of those things, particularly with like the dyeing, they're trying to find a balance between dyes that don't do as much damage to the production, there's not chromium runoff and all of that kind of thing, while still being able to give people brightly colored leather bags. So is there
1: like a, an established best practices of of how it should be if you are trying to produce or buy clothes that are
2: ethical? It depends on who you ask. You know, there are those who argue that organic cotton, for instance, is a wonderful material. There are others who will tell you that the production of cotton requires an extraordinary amount of water, So it depends on where that cotton is produced and, you know, is that water coming from a resource that isn't under pressure. Certainly, the fur industry would argue that you should buy real fur over faux fur. Really? Because they would argue that real fur is, one, very unlikely to end up in a landfill because it's something that's perceived as an heirloom purchase, Mm. that it is natural that it is biodegradable. Obviously, there are ethical considerations because it's also made from live (laughs) animals. Um, But they would argue that a lot of faux fur is made from petroleum-based materials.
1: So even if you think that you're doing good things for the planet or not killing animals, that in fact probably killing animals in one way or another.
2: And, you know, and the fur fur industry would say to you, well, you know, yes, there's petroleum use in some of our fabrications, but why are we being held to a different standard than the entire world of synthetic fabrics when we are, in fact, saving animals? And isn't that something that should really take precedent? So then is part of the conversation also
1: about just the sheer size of our wardrobes, the amount of of clothing that we buy, and just trying to get people to buy less? Because I think that fashion is in a particularly like precarious position here because a lot of the point of fashion is basically to sell us things that maybe are not things that we need but <laughs> things that we want or maybe not things that are ultimately the most useful Mm. In in one form of the of the word useful, but things that are pretty and things that are well that give us certain feelings. And so adding sustainability to that mix is complicated.
2: That is true, but I also think that fashion sometimes gets misrepresented in the conversation because when you look at, say, the food industry the reality is that we really don't need a giant package of chocolate chip cookies. The chocolate chip cookies are the part of the food industry that brings us joy and pleasure and delight. There's the food that sustains us, that is necessary, and then there's everything else. And the same thing is true with fashion. There are the clothes that keep us from going naked, and then there's everything else that gives us pleasure and helps us define ourselves and decide which tribe we belong to and all those kinds of things. And while fashion is known as one of the worst polluters in terms of industry— I don't think that the answer to the sustainability puzzle is to say that we should you know, all start weaning ourselves off of fashion. I think, as with a lot of things, we need to start weaning ourselves off of gluttony. I honestly think that the question of trying to make the absolutely perfect decision when it comes to making a clothing purchase is really challenging and it's fraught. And there are so many things to consider that I'm honestly I'm not sure that it's really possible to buy perfectly. I think you can try to buy in the best way possible, and certainly buying local is one aspect of that, and trying to buy things that have been produced under fair labor practices, that is certainly something that I think can be accomplished, but We have allowed ourselves to get completely romanced by this idea that we have to have new clothes all the time. And that's led us to, you know, the rental economy and all those kinds of things. But to me, it doesn't really solve the fundamental problem of excess. So then what do you think
1: is the answer? Or even if there isn't a clear-cut answer, at least how do you think it affects what you buy and the decisions that you make?
2: I I probably am a terrible consumer (laughs) if I looked at, you know, closely at the labels of everything in my closet. But I do tend to believe that I'd rather invest in two pieces in the course of a season and love those pieces and wear them constantly than have a lot of things in my closet. You know, I don't have a wardrobe that needs to be shifted from one closet to the next, depending on the season. Everything is in in one space. And usually I have nothing to take to, you know, a consignment shop because I've worn it down to the nub. It's basically now a rag and it must be thrown away. <laughs> so that's my way of dealing with it. You know, for some people, the answer may be buying vintage Mm. It's absolutely something to consider. And, you know, some people are very passionate about that. You know, and other people, truly, their, their focus is on buying organic. Everyone has to figure out, okay, what is the way that it makes sense in your life to be a better fashion consumer, be a better clothing consumer?
1: Robin Gavon writes about fashion for The Post. And now, one more thing about two reporters who decided to watch 15 straight hours of Little Women.
0: Okay, it is 9.45 a.m., and I am walking up to the door of Monica's house. It is gray and rainy, which I think is probably the best weather you could possibly want for watching 15 hours of the same story over and over again. Right? Here we go. I'm Caitlin Gibson. I'm a feature writer in the style section we ready to do this? I was born ready to do this. All right,
3: let's begin. And I'm Monica Hessey and I'm a columnist also in the style section.
0: There's obviously been a lot of buzz about the new Greta Gerwig remake of Little Women and so in advance of that new movie coming out, uh, Monica and I who are both huge fans of Little Women decided that we wanted to watch all of the Little Women's consecutively all in a row. Little Women, of course, the seminal novel by Louisa May Alcott, written in 1868, telling the story of four sisters living with their mother in Concord, Massachusetts. Their father was away serving as a chaplain in the Civil War, and the story chronicles their coming of age. What do those girls do over there all day? Over the mysteries of female life, there is drawn a veil,
1: best left undisturbed.
0: Like, is, this, is that, like, the minute I heard that, that started to yeah. bring it back for me, it's It's amazing how a theme like that can just, like, sit in your consciousness without you actually realizing that you've retained it.
1: As Caitlin and Monica settled in for their 15 hours of Little Women, they tried to make their viewing experience as authentic as possible, down to their choice of movie snack, pickled limes. There was a scene in the book where pickled limes are apparently the treat that is
0: all the rage at Amy's school, and that is a rather pivotal scene. And so, Monica, we tried to find pickled limes, but what happened? So we found
3: pickled lemons, which we we felt like were in the spirit of the
0: fermented, salted citrus genre. And I think we really went into it with probably an inadvisable level of optimism, which is, I mean, kids seemed to like this. This was a great treat in this 18- eighteen hundreds and so sure maybe they're actually going to be good but yeah they were basically like the hot cheetos of the 1860s we were pretty we were pretty
3: excited about experiencing this delectable century-old treat that had made amy popular and and like then ruined her social life exactly i'm going to describe this as something that looks like it would emerge from Mother's Chest Cavity in
0: one of the alien movies oh, starring God. A Sigourney Weaver. Oh,
3: that's
0: kind of a horrifyingly accurate description. They tasted like gym socks marinated in goat bile, but somehow rubbery. With the texture of
1: eyeballs. Just They were like gym sock flavored eyeballs. So, pickled lemons at the ready, the binge watch commenced. Caitlin and Monica started out with the early adaptations of Little Women.
0: 1949, starring June Allison as Jo.
2: You're going to have a lovely nose someday, Amy. Yes, I know. 1958,
0: musical starring Florence Henderson. 1978, miniseries starring Susan Day and William Shatner.
2: You're too kind. And ever since, I think, how can I repay her?
0: 1981 Japanese anime series. 1994, starring Winona Ryder as Joe. 2018, starring Sarah Davenport as Joe. So
3: we started with what we think most audiences would consider the the classic standard bearer adaptation. You don't have to go to that nasty old Davis' school with impertinent girls who laugh at your dresses and label your father if he isn't rich. Libel, libel. Don't say label as a pop or a pickle bottle. It was made in 1933, and it starred Katherine Hepburn as Joe, which we were pretty excited about. I'm a Katherine Hepburn fan. We didn't see how this movie could go wrong, and we thought it would be a good barometer for how we were going to view the rest of the movies. Um, we didn't love it as much as we thought
0: we would. No, we really didn't.
3: I know what I mean, and you needn't be satirical about it. It's proper to use good words and improve your vocabulary.
0: Aren't we elegant? And then we also had a weird Professor Bear situation where uh, the ostensibly German professor who Joe ultimately marries, I mean, as, as I just said, he's German, so he's supposed to have a German accent, but he, you know, was speaking a little bit like this. Joe, we were, come and marry me. We were a little confused. It,
3: it was, was it was a definitely.
0: spicy uh, Professor Bear situation, mm-hmm. and it really kind of just took us a little bit out of the moment.
2: That, that trip to Europe. That you so look forward to. Oh, that is too bad. That's a that's a cruel disappointment.
3: Columbia Pictures invites you to share the holidays with a family of little women.
0: Okay, are we ready for the holy grail? Like what we what we came here to see the classic. I think that whether or not... Well, we arrived at the 1994 Little Woman late in our marathon, and by then I think we were a little nervous on two counts. On one hand, we'd watched hours and hours and hours of Little Women, and we were a little worried that maybe the impact of this, this amazing movie that we loved so dearly as emotional little teenagers, maybe it would be diluted and it wouldn't feel quite as powerful as it once did.
2: If I were going to be a writer, I'd go to New York and... Through the stage. Are you shocked? Very.
0: But that version, it really, it really held up. I'm not wrong, am I? No, it was everything I wanted it to be and more, which is really saying something because I don't think I'd watched it in maybe 15 years, to be quite honest. And so watching it again now, much closer to Marmy's age than Joe, feeling as affected by it as I did, just in a very different way, but as you know, just as moved was very gratifying. There was a lot, a lot of crying. I'm not going to lie. Your father's been (gasps) wanted.
3: This movie had so much resonance to us because it was our little women. It was the movie that came out when we were 12 or 13 and when we needed it the most, just like the 1949 version was probably something that came out when my grandmother was 12 or 13 and needed it the most. And so... Watching all of these versions, I feel like, gave us a window into women of the time and the experiences that they might have had reliving this novel by seeing it on the screen. I think after we saw the 1994 version that was so formative for us, there was a moment where we were afraid of the new version could it live up to what we wanted it to be i'm working on a novel it is a story of my life
1: and my sisters make it short and spicy and if the main character is a girl make sure she's married by the end
3: Ouch. but i think we really feel like there's there's a new little women for every generation every generation deserves its own vision and version of this story so we've already pre-ordered our tickets
1: Monica Hesse and Caitlin Gibson write for the style section at The Post. The latest movie adaptation of Little Women is written and directed by Greta Gerwig. It opens on Christmas Day. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We're off tomorrow for Christmas, but we'll be back on Thursday with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.